Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Country Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Ken Burns' country music documentary hosted by Nate Wilcox and James Porter. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and James discuss Episode 4, I Can't Stop Loving You, which covers Nashville's struggles to adapt to the sudden emergence of rockabilly in Memphis, Johnny Cash, Patsy Cline, and the Nashville Sound. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. I'm joined once again by James Porter, which means we're continuing our discussion of Ken Burns' documentary series, Country Music. Tonight we're talking about country episode number four, I can't stop loving you, 1953 to 1963. James, welcome. How you doing? Doing well. This is a big one. Rock and roll comes along and just blows a big old hole in the side of the country ship. Scares country establishment in four minutes, but they bounce back. This they do. This they do. And Burns starts <clears throat> with the funeral of Jimmy Rogers, or not the funeral of Jimmy Rogers, but the 20th anniversary of the death of Jimmy Rogers, which was a big celebration in his hometown of Meridian, Mississippi. Some 20,000 people show up. The Carter family reunites the original with AP and Sarah and Maybell. The Monroe brothers uh, bury their hatchet for one day to reunite for this show. And to me, it was like, really a reminder of how near in time this era was to the beginnings of country music. It had only been 20 years since Jimmy Rogers died, and it had only been a few weeks since the funeral of Hank Williams, which drew a comparable crowd in Alabama just before. And they open episode with Whisper and Bill Anderson talking about how country is a family and we're brought together by hardship, blah, blah, blah. And doesn't really indicate why they're doing that until the end of the episode, which ends in tragedy with the death of Patsy Cline, Hawkshaw Hawkins, and Cowboy Copas in a plane crash in March of 1963. I hope right. there's no spoilers out there for anybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know about Patsy. What did you make of the the the, the way they structured this episode and the, the juxtapositions of the different stories? Uh, be honest with you. I mean, that's kind of Ken Burns' way because he's been doing weird juxtapositions like that all throughout the series, and I hope that's not a spoiler. But I think by the time they got around to this, I was kind of used to it. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, he did. I mean, he did get around to like. I mean, I know it's very dramatic, as you just said. Like, you know, having everybody start out talking about like you know, country stars united in tragedy, and we don't find out until the end. But that's just kind of typical Burns. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, he's laying the groundwork. He's keeping the narrative thread moving, pulling you through the story. And, you know, some people can complain that this or that favorite gets left out. And in this episode, definitely Don Gibson gets really short shrift. He's, you know, one of the early pioneers of the country politan Nashville sound. He's only mentioned in the context of writing the massive 
what Ray Charles turns into a massive, massive uh, pop hit, and I can't stop loving you. Jim Reeves, another country politan king, gets pretty short shrift, barely gets mentioned. Roy Orbison, who recorded his monument hits of the early '60s there in Nashville is on camera, is on screen, and is heard, but isn't mentioned by name. So, you know, there's definitely, I think, some grounds for people being left out. But you and I talked about the one big name that got left out that indisputably, I think, should have been mentioned. Johnny Horton. Absolutely. And and sure, they have sure. multiple opportunities to bring him up. Um, you know, not only does he die in a tragic car wreck in this period, and 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 was a solid honky tonk singer before he reaches fame in this story song era that that yeah. we'll talk about in a minute. Um, so that that was and it's kind of the, to be mentioned that he wasn't, you know, of all the old guard guard country guys, he wasn't afraid of uh, rockabilly. Oh, definitely. You know, he, kind not. Of met, he kind of met that head on, to be honest with you. I mean, I think he kind of figured, you know, that he was going to have to make some visual changes because I mean, they didn't they didn't talk about this in the special, but. I'm talking about Johnny Horton in relation to uh, country music and how it was about to like you know have a big crossover success. It's like when he was doing rockabilly, he was still you know wearing a suit and a cowboy hat, you know. And I think as soon as like Elvis kind of went in and, and kind of like rearranged things, I think you know the old uh, I think the new the new uh, rock rollers was going to go for like you know an old country singer unless he was handsome as Elvis. So I think that's about a time that he took off the hat got a hairpiece and got a suit and he gradually <laughs> <laughs> no really you know, I know, and, I know. You know he kind of gradually makes that con- makes transition from I mean because what I like about Johnny Horton is I guess for me like I probably told you before I got into country through rockabilly and there were a number of songs that Johnny Horton did you know where you can hardly tell where the rockabilly ends and the country begins because the, the fusion is seamless you know, and then he moves on to the story songs. And because of this, this is why he really should have been dealt with more than he had been because he was a crossover king. He was on American Bandstand, you know, he had Dick Clark shows, you know, and uh, songs like the Ballad of New Orleans, Sink to Bismarck, there was big on the pop charts, there were on the country charts. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, they try to cover that by talking about Marty Robbins, who obviously had the massive hit with El Paso. And they'd used him earlier to represent, to stand in for country artists who dabbled in rock and roll successfully. And Marty Robbins definitely did that with White Sport Coat and a Pink Carnation, right. which charted really high on the pop charts. And, uh, you know, between these two phases, as his first rockabilly pop phase and and Marty Robbins honestly was more pop rock than rockabilly although he did some rockabilly numbers and then he comes back with the story song with El Paso so you know again they like to use people that they can touch multiple bases with like and and they also like to tell stories that they could continue from episode to episode they kind of use this Carter family uh Johnny Cash and the the Carter Cash dynasty as a thread through the whole series. And another one well, that the funny they could... part is you talk about people who like you know covered multiple uh, multiple uh, what was what was used who covered they... multiple bases. I mean, it's like I hate to keep bringing this up, but Johnny Horton. I mean, he was all over the place back in the late fifties, early sixties. You know, and they just kind of overlooked him altogether. You know. Yeah. They cut him right out. And I mean, I can kind of see why, because again, those story songs he did were bigger on the pop charts, I think, than the than the country charts. But anyway, that's, you know, I think overall, though, they do quite a good job. I was, the first time I watched it, I was pretty irked because I didn't catch the Don Gibson reference. And I have a soft spot for Don Gibson. And I started with Don Gibson with Neil Young's version of Oh Lonesome Me. And, yeah, you know, the weird thing about Don Gibson is so many of these guys like Jim Reeves and others were staples of country oldies radio when I was growing up, but I almost never heard Don Gibson songs. And and so for me, going back and rediscovering Don Gibson's catalog, which is stacked, you know, was a real treat. But let's get back to the narrative of the episode. So they start, right. you know. They 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 start with the Jimmy Rogers event and then they quickly segue to Memphis and they have to talk about Elvis Presley who's a weird figure in country music history because he comes out of the country music business I mean he's on Sun Records which was kind of an R and B label but really is more of a nothing label I mean it was a really insignificant label when Elvis first gets on there but he starts out 
touring with country acts. He's opening up for people like Slim Whitman, for Hank Snow, uh, touring with these country acts and definitely and starts out on the Louisiana Hayride after a one-time appearance on the Grand Ole Opry. And, you know, obviously his first single was one half a cover of a Arthur Big Boy Crudup blues song. Another half was a rocked up 4-4 version of Bill Monroe's Blue Moon of Kentucky. And so, you know, Elvis is obviously coming out of a country context just because there isn't really any other place for him to go. He's too wild for pop. He's too ethnic for pop, too country, too black. Nobody knew what to make of this. It's it's really a whole And obviously thing. You, could, you, could, you couldn't really make it an R&B because, I mean, Johnny Ray, notwithstanding the era of Blue-Eyed Soul Brothers, hadn't really come yet. No. You know, so some so somebody like Elvis Presley working at Chitlin Circle would have been unheard of in 1955. You know? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And let's go ahead and hear um, our first song. And this one um, is Brenda Lee, who they use as a sort of stand-in for these country artists who go rockabilly and that and take that path into the pop charts. So here's a early track from Brenda Lee. Let's jump the broomstick. And that was Brenda Lee's Let's Jump the Broomstick, which is a track that she put out right before she exploded. One of your picks, James. Sweet choice. I really dug the song. And Brenda Lee like, yeah. is one who gets a lot of screen time in this one. And, and, you know, we talked about this offline, and it's easy to say, you know, what the heck? She was, you know, more of a pop figure than a country figure. She had some very minor chart action in the country charts in the 50s almost nothing in the 60s and then comes in in the 70s and has a string of hits in the mid 70s on the country charts and tours in the country environment but i see whether to me what they're doing with her is on the one hand she's a classic example of an artist who was from a country background who had it not been for Elvis and rock and roll would have clearly been in the country marketplace who went pop. But she's also somebody who knew Patsy Cline, who was friends with Patsy Cline, who toured with Mel Tillis and George Jones and the, and the Carter sisters in this era. So she's a perfect person to tell some of these stories. And I think because she's close to Patsy Cline and I think because they couldn't get Loretta Lynn, um, you know, she's a great person on camera. What, what do you think of the way they included Brenda Lee in this? It was kind of, I mean, I didn't object to seeing her, but I remember thinking at the time that to me, including Brenda Lee would be like including Roy Orbison. There was a country influence there, you know, yeah. that you can't deny, you know, and they both had both Orbison and Lee had country influence, had country influence to an extent. However, though, like I said before, at least, you know, when we're talking off, um, you know, when we're talking earlier this week, you know, it's like if you judge Brenda Lee, solely by her country success, you know, then uh, she becomes a minor figure all of a sudden, you know, because yeah. she was just as much, she was just as much R&B as she was rock and roll because the first two LPs had a serious, you know, for a 13 year old white girl from the South, those first two albums she did on Decca had like a serious R&B influence. Yeah. You know, it always seems to be overlooked, you know, and I think after I'm sorry, it became a hit, you know, then Decca records kind of like, you know, eased her into the ballad market, you know, and, uh, you know, and she never, she never really lost the country thing uh, or the R&B thing, you know, a hundred percent. I mean, cause even by, even by like 1969 or so, she had like the sort of like country politan hit with a song called Johnny one time, you know, I mean, she always kind of kept, you know, um, she, always, she always kept some kind of ties with that field, but just the same, I, I've always welcomed to see her. And I'll admit, you know, seeing her on that special made me want to dig out uh, that second self-titled Brent Leo P. Let's Jump to Broomstick. This is a great record overall, you know, but it did seem I would expect it more for Wanda Jackson to be in that spot than Brenda Lee. And that's that, that's not casting stones either Brenda or Wanda, 
It's just yeah. that, you know, it's kind of expected for me. Yeah. Yeah. But they did give one of Jackson some screen time, uh, showed her performing, uh, doing a great fake out where she introduces uh, Hard Headed Woman as one of the great love songs of our time. And, and that's also <laughs> footage of her playing with Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, which is just crazy um, to imagine. Like the look on Bob Wills' face as he's standing behind Wanda Jackson is, is pretty interesting. Um <laughs> You know, for sure. And and also one thing I want to mention was they talk a little bit about Bill Monroe being resistant to Elvis's version of Blue Moon of Kentucky. And they quote Charlie Daniels, who was a young bluegrass partisan at the time, as, you know, really being pissed off about the change. And I have no doubt that that was true. And Charlie Daniels obviously turned around and, and accepted the rock and roll. And Marty Stewart tells a story about how, you know, Bill Monroe was grumpy about it until he got the royalty check. But I've read in other places that Bill Monroe when he met Elvis at the Grand Ole Opry, immediately dug the 4-4 version of Blue Moon of Kentucky and immediately taught his band how to play it and quickly recorded his own version of it as, as a 4-4 rather than a waltz time song. So kind of curious about that. Um, but it's it's a good way, to, I think, to, to, to explain the sort of shock and resistance of elements of the country audience. Like they've got Bill C. Malone, the author of Country Music USA, who's um, you know, the Shelby Foote or Sidney Crouch of this series, the the kind of brains behind it that, that Kim Burns uses as his model. And Bill Malone talks about seeing Elvis open up for, for Hank Snow, who was his favorite at the time. And Hank had to cut his set short so Elvis could do a second set. And Bill Malone was like, this is the beginning of the end of the music that I love. So you know, a lot of people really recognize what was happening. And they talk about, you know, the number of country radio stations went from like 600 in 1954 to less than 85 by the end of the decade. So this is just a devastation in the country marketplace. And there's not really anything else analogous to this. I mean, obviously, a lot of pop singers were displaced, but the pop market itself was not hurt. R&B, there was a generational shift. We talked before about how people like Louis Jordan were kind of left behind when the hard R&B and, and rock and roll stuff came out. But R&B wasn't displaced. I mean, you know, people like Little Richard just moved up to the pop charts and, and, and maintained their status in the R&B world. Chuck Berry, uh, another example. I also thought it was cool that they start – the first song they play is Maybelline by Chuck Berry, which is a country song all the way. I mean it's a rewrite of Bob Will's version of the traditional Ida Red, but they don't mention Chuck by name. Um, but they do talk – you know, when they – when the Ray Charles section comes in because he, 1962, has his massive, massive pop success with his album Modern Sounds in Country and Western, which wasn't marketed through the country marketplace. It was marketed as a pop record, but he made it up front, Modern Sounds in Country and Western. And I just love that. I love Vince Gill talking about how proud country people were that Ray Charles, somebody like Ray Charles had, had taken their music and, and brought it to this massive audience. And he, he talks about Ray Charles as somebody, you know, to hang your hat on. And for me personally, this is just right. sentimental. Like as a Gen Xer, Ray Charles is like my granddad or something. I mean, I have those feelings <laughs> for him, you know, and there's just this period of time, anybody that's our age can remember Ray Charles was just there. I mean, he was there on The Tonight Show. He was there on The Merv Griffin Show. He was there on the TV specials. He was just there, and everybody if liked you were born him. After certain, if you were born after a certain year, you know, uh, Ray Charles, like you said, he was always there. He was always like the father figure. You know, you never thought – you'd never known a world without him, and you never thought there'd ever be a world without him. He's like, you know, he's, he's eternal, you know. Um, yep. And it's really – also, there's been a couple things, you know, regarding Ray Charles – it's like at a time when there were no black country singers and the civil rights bill hadn't even passed, you know, and Ray Charles couldn't even pee in the same John as Don Gibson. It was yeah. kind of amazing that Nashville uh, music establishment would give a black man his props. I think that's beautiful. And well, I think two, the money was talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know what the funny part is? He wasn't even the first. I don't know if I've discussed this before, but and I don't mean to take away from Ray Charles, but a year before modern sounds and country country western music came out, um, Brooke Benton had an LP called something like yeah, the Bold Weevil song. The Bold Weevil song, huh? Last, yeah, you talked about that last episode. Um, you oh, know, yes, yeah, yeah. And and Arthur Alexander, I was thinking about that too. He he has a number of R and B charts hits around the same period that are totally country songs. And, um, but 
made made no dent on the country market. And it wasn't until the Beatles and the Rolling Stones cover of stuff that most white Americans paid any mind to Arthur Alexander. But yeah, no, it is it is totally interesting. But I think the thing with Ray Charles was he was so big and that album and that single was just so big, nobody, nobody could ignore it. And you know, I like Willie Nelson's quote that Ray Charles did more for a country than any other artist ever. You know, and so I think just the the magnitude of his success. I mean, can you imagine what Don Gibson's royalty checks were on that? Um, you know, I can't stop loving you. And so, I think I think Nashville has always responded to money. <laughs> and, this, and, you know, this kind of, of reminds me of something. Um, you mentioned Don Gibson. This is so weird. Um, it's a little bit of a diversion, but it hooks into what we're talking about just the same. Uh, I was once watching a documentary about Ray Charles on PBS, and one of the talking head, uh, one of the talking head uh, interviewees was Billy Joel. You know, and Billy Joel was talking about the same topic we're talking about now. Still there? Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so anyway, and anyway, so it's like you know, I actually dropped the phone there. Excuse me. But anyway, <laughs> um, what happened was Billy Joel was talking about "I Can't Stop Loving You," and it's you know evolution from a country song to an R&B song, you know, and he'd evidently never heard the original because he started going to, an, this is Billy Joel talking, you know, he says that because when I Can't Stop Loving You was a country song, it originally sounded like, and he does this really terrible primetime TV, you know, Andy Griffith imitation of a country singer. I can't stop loving you. Do, do, do. It's easier to say, do, 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 do. You know, and he's trying to make it look like the country version is inferior to what Ray Charles did. And I was kind of insulted watching that because Don Gibson was a, was a for lack of a better term, he was a rural sophisticate. He sounded nothing like that. Yeah. I mean, he, he was like, because Ray Charles recorded several Don Gibson songs, and there was a certain urbane quality to Don Gibson's songs. He wasn't just some hasty, you know, singing out of tune. I mean, his stuff was like, you know, I mean, I mean, I don't, even, I don't want to use the word urbane again, but I it mean, was the cause country Paulton sound. I mean, it was, it was right, right. Chad Atkins perfecting that Nashville sound. That was, you know, one of the responses to rock and roll, but it's time to cue another song. And this brings up a subject switch. So let's hear the song. This is success from Loretta Lynn. And when we come right. back, we'll talk about Loretta and Patsy Cline and women in country in this period. And that was Success by Loretta Lynn, another one recorded just on the cusp of, of her big explosion. And, and Loretta Lynn and Patsy Cline are two of the other central figures in this. And and it's totally appropriate because Loretta was absolutely Patsy's protege. Uh, they tell the story of how Patsy Cline took her under her wing. Patsy Cline was in a hospital recovering from a car crash, the one that scarred her head so badly. And Loretta was on Ernest Tubbs' late-night radio show broadcasting from his radio station across the alley from the Ryman Auditorium. Patsy Cline hears it in the hospital, sends her husband to bring Loretta Lynn back and, and, and meet her, and then just takes her under a wing. And Patsy Cline's a figure, of course, in, in um, Coal Miner's Daughter, the book and the movie, and very well known that, that she had a mentor-protege relationship with Loretta Lynn. Very different performers, though. Loretta Lynn is very, very, very country, whereas Patsy Cline is both somebody who, with Walking After Midnight, kind of flirted with rockabilly, and then in her early 60s run on DECA with Owen Bradley producing, really epitomizes, and probably the pinnacle of the Nashville sound and, and, and the country politan vibe. And, yeah, like and, I probably said before, she was kind of like a female Charlie Rich, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's a good a good comparison because her voice is so rich and she can do so many different things, and right. and and Patsy is kind of the Jimmy Rogers or Hank Williams of this episode. She's another comet who's only in this one episode because her life was cut short at thirty uh, with the plane crash, and it seemed like you know death was nibbling at her toes with that car wreck she had just 
a year or so, maybe 18 months before she died. So, or maybe two, two and a half years, but yeah, it's, it's, it's poignant to me. I mean, I'm somebody who grew up, my big sister used to go through these phases where she'd get down over some boyfriend dumping her or whatever, and would really, really get into the Patsy Cline. And, 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 you know, we, we grieved together a lot, my sister and I, and, and Patsy Cline, you know, was right up there with Jim Croce and, and some of the others that, that we <laughs> cried about together. So, you know, the end of the episode <laughs> in particular is, is poignant, although they focus on Hawkshaw Hawkins, um, as kind of the center of that. And I guess that's because his widow, Jeannie Shepard is still alive and his story is, is, you know, he's kind of the big bopper of, of the country version of the day the music died. I mean, he's the uh, second or third guy in the car in the plane crash along with Patsy and Cowboy Copas. And he had his one hit um, released right before the plane crash. And he makes number one posthumously. Great story and a great singer. Another guy who I went back and listened to uh, quite a few of his tunes after listening to this episode. Well worth it. I mean, Hawkshaw Hawkins was one of those guys that should have made it sooner and it was just fate, and it was a heavy fate that he got on the plane with Patsy Cline after doing a benefit in Kansas City, and that's where the whole country music was a family thing because they were a whole bunch of performers went to Kansas City to do a benefit for a DJ who had just passed away in a car crash, and right. um, you know Hawkshaw and Cowboy Copas flew back with Patsy Cline a day later. Hawkshaw gave up his seat on a commercial airline for a friend whose father was ill, so. Yeah, it's 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 heavy duty stuff, and and it's a good way to end the episode, and I think a good way to cover a number of things because Patsy Cline also performed songs done written by Willie Nelson, and Willie Nelson's crazy yeah. number one jukebox hit of all time. So that's how they bring in the whole Nashville songwriter thing. They talk about the Bryants and they talk about how their partnership with the Everly brothers was a huge thing, which gives them an excuse to bring in the Lubin brothers briefly, but really Willie Nelson, they talk about Mel Tillis and Roger Miller. They mentioned Hank Cochran and Harlan Howard, um, who also wrote hits for Patsy Cline, but really Willie Nelson is the stand in for this new generation of songwriters. That's, hanging out at Tootsie's or Orchid Lounge and writing songs and selling them in Nashville in this period. You know, so yeah, it is interesting, uh, uh, the little uh, slight generational shift, you know? Yeah. So, you know. And, and it's part of Nashville becoming Music City, and they talk about that too. And again, they focus on the producers, Chet Atkins at RCA, and Owen Bradley, who with his brother Harold, who is also a session guitarist, you know, built the studio, they don't mention Jim Beck, but they do mention that Decca was about to move all their recording to da- all their country recording to Dallas. And there was a guy in Dallas who was cutting records in this period, um, Jim Beck, and he died right around this time. So they don't mention that they mention that the Bradleys build the studio and convinced Decca to stay in Nashville. They don't mention that their number one competitor conveniently died <laughs> around this time. But but this yeah. is definitely one of those forks in the road because the gravitational center of country music could very easily have moved to Dallas um, if if Decca yeah. had made that decision. Mm-hmm. Another thing they talk about is uh, the Jordanaires and the Anita Kerr singers, the backup singers that are a big part of this countropolitan sound. And let's take a break, hear from our sponsors, and when we come back, we'll talk more the ups and downs of the countropolitan Nashville sound. Right. And so before that sponsor break, I was I was mentioning that, you know, these smooth background singers like the Jordanaires, who most famous for backing up Elvis Presley on many recordings, but also the Anita Kerr singers uh, who backed up a ton of records and those kind of 50s choral background voices. This was a huge part of the whole Mitch Miller sound of the early 50s, a big part. You know, you, you hear it on Georgia Gibbs records, Patty Page records. This this was a signature pop sound of the fifties. And honestly, not having lived through the fifties, I still like that sound. I don't have anything against those background singers. It, it, it doesn't bother me at all, but a lot of people, it really sets their teeth on edge. What's your take on well, the whole country? Well, well, my take on it, uh, it's a case by case basis. You know, um, I gotta, I gotta be honest with you. Some labels did it better than others. Um, I think Columbia and Decca's country politics records are pretty good. And I know it's a blasphemy to say, but, uh, Lefty Frizzell did a 1964 remake of If You've Got the Money, I Got the Time. Yeah. You know, uh, on, on a Greatest Hits album. So it would be in stereo, right? You know, and um, 
it's got this kind of Mitch Miller sing-along chorus behind him. If you got the money, I got some money. What's the time? You know, it sounds really, yeah. really outlandish. But I kind of like it. You know, it kind of gives a you know, gives a song a new kick, you know. But while I like, you know, the country politics records are coming up, I know I'm sounding really technical here, so you have to pardon me. But I like, the reason I like the country politics records that Owen Bradley did for DECA, and um, I guess it was Don Law who did the same kind of records for Columbia, is because they still had a kick. I mean, they might have had the Jordanaires or whoever, you know, but they also had like a steam electric guitar and they also had a hard backbeat because they kind of knew they had to get the rock and roll kids, right? However, Chet Atkins at RCA was a lot more middle of the road. Um, he, 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 wasn't, he wasn't rock so much as pop, you know, so there were a lot of rough edges that were smoothed over and kind of missed, you know, and, um, and I think, you know, I mean, I mean, just the mere fact that, I mean, I know we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but I think Waylon and Willie, Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson, those two artists, two rugged individualists, you know, who they tried to fit into, into the, into the RCA formula, you know, and it didn't always take, you know, and when both men, I mean, in Willie's case, he left the label altogether. And in Waylon's case, he started recording in LA. Then he started recording with his own band to get away from all that, you know, and, you know, and, those like, you know, uh, those, you know, like two examples of why, you know, the countrypolitan thing, you know, wasn't really made for every, wasn't really made for everybody. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and Chet, you know, he was involved in the Everly brothers kind of early on and, and was involved in, in producing some of their hits, I think, although I had a harder time tracking that down, but I knew that he had been involved with them early. And, you know, he obviously produced Don Gibson and struggled with him through the whole uh, pill problem that Don Gibson developed, you know, after his massive success. And uh, so I I absolutely get what you're saying. And I agree. Owen Bradley is the stronger producer. But Chet did produce a lot of good stuff, although, again, boy, did Waylon Jennings struggle with him. And, and yeah. you know, I, I think it is – I think I think it's becoming clear over time that Owen Bradley and others did the Nashville sound better than Chet Atkins did. But, you know, Chet got his licks in for sure and, and was a big deal. And bringing up Lefty, I'm glad you brought that up because that Lefty Frizzell greatest hits from the mid-60s where he re-records all his 50s, that was the first Lefty album I ever owned. And that, that made album, me really – the, the, the remakes are shockingly good. Oh, yeah. Lefty's in fine form. But like you say, if you're a hardcore country person, especially if you grew up on the original hardcore honky-tonk versions from the early 50s, I can see where those are heresy. But for me, that was the first version I heard. I really love that stuff. And and Lefty comes back in this episode. You know, last time he was going toe-to-toe with Hank Williams for, you know, a heady 18 months. And then he really struggled in the rock and roll era, although he tried to adapt to rockabilly, but he just didn't hit. But then he comes back in the story song phase and and you know they they mention the the thing how old songs and new old songs were a big part of this. And Long Black Veil is a classic, you know, it was written to order to be a fake folk song, but it pulls right. it off. You know, and Lefty's the perfect, perfect singer for it. And it's a massive, massive hit for Lefty um, and and really epitomizes that story song. And another thing they do that I thought was was neat and something I didn't know was that they introduced this story song era by talking about the Kingston trio who, I mean, of course, I was aware of the massive success in the late 50s with this collegiate brand of, of quote unquote folk music descended from the Pete Seeger Weavers school, which we talked about in a previous episode of how that kind of folk bifurcated and, you know, folk music became something that originated out of New York city. And that's their tradition. The Kingston trio were coming out in and their song, Tom Dooley won the Grammy award for the country music performance of the year, which, I mean, if Charlie Rich was pissed about Olivia Newton, John getting the CMA award, people must've been just, pulling their teeth out when the Kingston trio. I mean, you know, but, but it just goes to show the music business didn't know what to make of folk yet. Cause even though the, the weavers had had the massive success in the early fifties, they got blacklisted pretty quickly. And, 
kind of to me got lumped in with things like Tony Bennett doing Cold Cold Heart or um, you know Patty Page's version of Tennessee Waltz is just part of that weird period where three chord country songs were a big part of the pop scene for a little while and then and then that changed and the Weavers get blacklisted and and kept their appeal they kept a cult audience and then they you know reunite and do the big show at, at, at Carnegie Hall and then the Kingston trio just explodes as this massive massive pop phenomenon and I have to think it was people who were college students in the late 50s so they they were kids who were buying records in the Weaver's heyday in the early 50s and listening to Johnny Ray and buying How Much Is That Doggy in the Window and all that stuff. So it's not quite – it's the pre-rock and roll generation that was the Kingston Trio fan base. And and they're kind of I – would, I would think so because you notice the Kingston Trio didn't really make the transition to folk rock. No, definitely not. I mean the, the Beatles made a lot of things passe and the Kingston Trio was one of them. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I, Whereas people like Peter, Paul, and Mary, who come along a little later, managed to keep having hits all through the 60s, although they never really go folk rock either, other than their parody song, Slamming the Mamas and the Papas. But that's... Yeah. Um, but they were well, still selling records, though, so they were obviously yeah. on top of something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they they you know had Leaving on a Jet Plane and all that kind of stuff. So let's hear another song. And this is Johnny Cash's stab at the story song genre. And this is uh, Johnny Cash with Don't Take Your Guns to Town. Restless on the farm, a boy filled with wanderlust who really meant no harm. He changed his clothes and shined his boots and combed his dark hair down. And his mother cried as he walked out. Don't take your guns to town, son. Leave your guns at home, Bill. Don't take your guns to town. And that was Johnny Cash, Don't Take Your Guns to Town, which is his entry into the story song Stakes, you know, right up there. They talk about El Paso by Marty Robbins in that genre. Uh, I don't think they mentioned Jimmy Dean's Big Bad John by name, but there's they do mention that one year, I think it was 59, six out of the 10 top 10 country songs that year were story songs. So there was something in the American consciousness as the 50s turned into the 60s that wanted to hear these sort of faux traditional story songs and and it was a big deal and johnny's right in there but the thing i want to talk about with johnny is the way they tell his personal story they use his personal story both as a stand-in for elvis and sun records it's a way to bring carl perkins in there because there's a great story about johnny suggesting the title blue suede shoes to carl perkins as a song idea and carl perkins suggesting i'll walk the line as the song title for johnny and johnny and then they tell the story about Johnny wrote that song, I Walk the Line, for his first wife, Vivian. And then, you know, Roseanne Cash tells that story. Then she said, laughs and says, of course, he didn't walk the line. <laughs> he wasn't true to her. And then that brings in the whole Ring of Fire. It's the other song they kind of frame that Johnny Cash segment with. So they have three different segments in the story, in the episode about Johnny Cash. And Ring of Fire, of course, is the song June Carter wrote about falling in love with Johnny Cash illicitly in, the, in their affair. Her sister wow. Anita had, had cut a version, which I hadn't been aware of before this show that they played. And you can, it's a really nice version. Anita Carr's a great singer, but you know, when you hear the Johnny Cash version with those Mexican, you know, uh, trumpets, uh, you know, it, just this massive, massive hit as part of his massive, massive country and pop success in the early That's 60s production you ever got too yeah <laughs> oh yeah it's 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 a sweet production and and you know they use johnny i think pretty well to tell those stories and and also just to hook people in on these narratives they did the same thing with sarah carter and her love for koi bays in in the second episode so this carter cash dynasty they're telling their their story of their lives and loves all the way through this as a narrative hook, which I think is great. I mean, the, the goal of a documentary like this is to expand beyond country music nerds like us and, and get into just regular folks who are turning on their TV and want to see a story that's compelling. Right. And, 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 and I, I think they did have about dumbing it down. I know that some people might argue with me about that because I had some pretty loaded uh, um, Facebook conversations about that when the show was actually running. You know, for every person who thought it was well done, there was always the, 
well, they missed Hugh X. Lewis, so it can't be all that good, you know, or they, they, they skipped over Henson Cargo, so it can't be all that great, you know, but yeah. it's really, you know, I mean, uh, in general, it's like, I mean, there was some very egregious omissions like Johnny Horton, as we discussed earlier, and of course, Conway Twitty, which we might, which might come up later. Yeah, we'll come next time. Although he is mentioned in this episode. And also, they did mention Roy Oberson by name in the context when they listed people like him and Conway Twitty that are in the acolytes of Elvis falling along in the wake. But they didn't mention Roy's name when they played his big hits that he was cutting in Nashville uh, a few years later. But yeah, again. And another thing, okay, go ahead. too, that I, mean, I, thought, I thought about as well. It's like, it's almost like there's an alternate reality where Elvis is really a country singer you know, who goes pop, you know, and Johnny Cash is really a rock singer who goes country. I mean, mm. if you think about it, like, even though like Elvis is the rocker and Johnny is the country guy, they've always had followings in each other's fields. Yeah. You know, I mean, Johnny Cash, Johnny Cash is always like what I call like the token country singer in a rock band's collection, yep. you know, and, and there was a TV special he hosted like in the early seventies where he had on like, you know, all these, uh, all these, uh, uh, rock star, yeah. Like Bob, when only after the spe- a later special we had, we had like Neil Young on singing the Neil the Damage Done. He had on Tony Joe White, James Taylor, and Linda Ronstadt. Yeah. And I think during the during the hippie era, even though he didn't really didn't really identify either Republican or Democrat, he did kind of reach out to uh, the hippie market in ways that you know Merle Haggard wouldn't have done. Yes. You know, at least not. Yeah. Absolutely. And speaking of Merle Haggard, they bring him up because. You know, legendarily, Johnny plays at San Quentin in this period, and Merle Haggard's one of the prisoners who decides, you know, I'm going to straighten my life out. If I get out of this jail, I'm going to be a singer like Johnny Cash. And it's a great way to tell the Johnny Cash story because, you know, Merle Haggard was still alive when they made this, so he could get on camera and talk about it. And it's also that narrative thread. It sets up for the next episode because Merle's going to be a big part of it next week. And it's also... That's kind of the magic of Johnny Cash, because I know exactly what you're saying. Like his his Rick Rubin albums in the 90s, and he played Emos here in Austin. And I saw that show, and, right. you know, just legendary stuff. But definitely no, was the rock saying, There are people right now who say that, you know, the Rick Rubin LPs are kind of like a weird sellout because they're trying to make them do like Nine Inch Nails, the Pesh Mold songs. I'm like, well, hey, where were you back in the 60s when you was like, you know, hanging out with like Bob Dylan? Exactly. You know, and Neil Young, you know, and yep. <laughs> yeah. he, always, he always had the far reaching, and even the 50s, I mean, at first, because he was like probably one of the few country singers, the only country singer really of the 50s who didn't use a fiddle and, didn't, didn't use a fiddle and steel on his records. Yep. And then he wore all black when everybody else was wearing like, you know, multicolored crap, you know? So, I mean, in the context of 1956, I can see how he could easily pass for rock and roll when he was yeah. on Sun, you know? Yeah. Definitely, Hey Porter and others. I mean, really fit in with rockabilly all the way. And 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 Elvis, you know, had later hits with things like Kentucky Rain, and um, yeah. you know, played a lot of Jerry Reed songs, and Guitar Man, and others. And I think the country audience that Elvis just frankly stole from the country industry never left him. And and country people always loved Elvis, although he and Colonel Parker were very careful to never market him as a country artist and, and really limited the, the number of country songs he could do. Because I think they knew that his status as a pop musician was tenuous just because he was a cracker hillbilly redneck, you know, f- from from the sticks. And, and came along in this one window of time when these young country guys – because of their absorption of black music seemed so new and novel and were obviously not backward hillbillies, that, that they were on the cutting edge and leading American culture for this brief moment. You know, and he seized that moment and, and he held that. But yeah, yeah, this this interrelationship of Elvis and, and country is still a, a fraught relationship, even the way they handle it in this episode where they have to talk about Elvis because, you know, he comes out of the country business and his impact on it was so huge but like they get um bill anderson to say you know at first we didn't know what to make of elvis he's doing a country song he's doing an r&b song he's you know kind of alternating back and forth through the sun area then he does don't be cruel and he's gone he's off 
being a pop star and Johnny Cash stayed with us. And, you know, they quote yeah. somebody else saying that, you know, Elvis was never really a country singer, but Johnny Cash always was. And, and so, yeah, it, there's definitely could be a parallel universe where the two of them um, flip places. But I want to play our last song and then come back and talk a little bit more about Loretta Lynn because uh, there's a great Merle Haggard quote I want to get to. But let's hear Patsy Cline's Faded Love. This is a Bob Wills song that she recorded right before she died. It didn't come out until after her death. This is Patsy Cline's Faded Love. That you wrote to me It's you I am thinking of as I read the lines that to me were so dear. I remember And that was Patsy Klein doing Bob Will's classic Faded Love. And yeah, that and Sweet Dreams were the her posthumous single and just massive, massive hits. And anytime a star goes out on top like that and has a new album, a new single in the can, of course it's going to be a massive hit. But I think those songs have held up over time. Um, but I don't have so much to say about Patsy, but her project, Loretta Lynn, they tell the story of how Loretta, the classic, I mean, this is the coal miner's daughter story of, you know, very young girl from Butcher Holler, Kentucky, coal mine in town, who marries young to to do little at age 14. And, you know, in our Me Too era, that kind of stuff is really frowned on. It was not yeah. ideal back then. And, and, and you well, know, she, she has these four... Oh, know. yeah. And and I and and you know they tell the story of how she she had the four kids quickly and and got a hold of a guitar and would force the kids to sit there and listen to her sing and everything, but I thought Merle Haggard put it really well when he said he's talking about her first single Honky Tonk Girl, that was financed by a fan who'd seen her playing in a Tacoma Washington Honky Tonk and gets this single out and you know Loretta and Moon Mooney famously barnstorm around to radio stations all over the country getting it to play. And Merle Haggard says she wanted out of that life she was in, and she kind of sang her way out of prison. And coming from Merle, I thought that was really insightful and kind of a feminist take. And also, that was his story, too. He sang his way out of prison. And, and it's, I think that's one of the secret powers of country music is it's a way for poor people to sing their way out of the circumstances of their lives. You know, that's just universal, kind of like, you know, the Velvet Underground songs. Her, her life was saved by rock and roll. There is a country equivalent, you know? Yep, 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 absolutely. And, and you know, that happens um, totally uh, in Loretta's story. And then um, last couple things I want to get to. I did mention Ronnie Millsap. They used Ronnie Millsap to talk about Ray Charles and his country's success, which is totally appropriate because as much as I grew up in that, 80s thinking of Ronnie Millsap as one of these pop country guys I couldn't stand and that somebody that I was so happy when people like Randy Travis and George Strait kind of blew him off the radio but as I've learned more and I've listened to Ronnie's early stuff he's a Memphis R&B guy who entered the country market really because he didn't have anywhere else to go and as a blind musician of course Ray Charles is a big role model to him so I thought it was really sweet that they let Ronnie Millsap speak for Ray and, and, and really fitting, you know, and, and. I was kind of like you. It's like, I mean, I kind of came along, came along to Ronnie Millsap, you know, through the back rows myself. I thought it was like a corny eighties country singer that, you know, the Randy Travis got, you know, got rid of. However, in the, in the two thousands at the magazine where I was working for, I I received a compilation of Ronnie's greatest hits back. And right after that, I went to see him live. You know, and I gotta say, listen to those songs one after another and seen them live. The R and B, the R and B influence is audible. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of candy coated, you know, but it kind of yeah. gives like a little bit more grit than say Lee Greenwood. You know what I mean? Oh, one hundred percent. It's not immediately evident, but it's there, and that's kind of why he might go down a lot easier with you and me than a Green than a Lee Greenwood. You know? <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's sort of like Charlie Rich, a, a lesser Charlie Rich for sure, but somebody who had such a blend and 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 the R and B was such a big part of their music that that they kind of had to struggle to find their way to find a commercial path to get that. But 
But I love this, the triumph in his voice when he's bragging on Ray Charles. As you know, Ray knew what the pulse of America was all about. These songs that tell story, that's what country music's about. And then yeah. Ryan and Giddens of the Carolina Chocolate Drops has a great, great quote in this about the Ray Charles doing the Don Gibson song to massive success. And she says, the best things in American music are always a mix. One of the reasons American music has taken over the world is because everybody can feel that it comes from one plus one equals a hundred, that there's this multiplying effect when Americans of different backgrounds, you know, African-Americans and, and Scots-Irish-Americans mix these heritages. The synergy is just massive. And, I'd never heard it put that way. And, and, and the way she expressed it, one of the reasons American music took over the world in the 20th century, because everybody can feel that it's a mix. And it's a mix that the people, the city fathers of Nashville, who didn't even like country music, um, definitely did not want taking place. I mean, it's something that the, the powers that be in America never wanted any part of. And another thing that they bring up in this episode that I'd really never thought about before was the Italian-Americanness of Felice and Budlow Bryant. Budlow wasn't Italian-American, but his wife Felice was, Sicilian. And they would tell the story of how they would pitch their songs over these Italian spaghetti dinners. And as somebody from Texas who grew up in places without good Italian food, it's such a treat you know, to get good Italian food. And, and the thought of... Uh, you know, these country singers going and having probably their first ever homemade Sicilian meal. And if you've ever had, you know, never pass up a chance to have a homemade Sicilian meal. Oh my God. You know, and of course they sold songs, you know, fill them up with red wine and spaghetti and, and, and then hit them with, you know, some of their excellent songs. So I like that too, because you definitely don't think about Italian Americans as being a big part of the country mix. Right. You don't. Yeah. And, 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 or, you know. or, or Jewish either. You know, one of the big uh, country songwriters of this period was a guy named Cy Coleman. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. and Shel Silverstein um, later on, who I'm guessing is Jewish. I could be wrong about that. But yeah, there's there's he, much. And of course, Kinky Friedman comes along a little later and is, is yeah. one of these guys. But yeah, that, that whole mix. I mean, I've frequently thought, you know, you know, you think about Plato or whatever and, and how Plato would talk about how, you know, you should never allow music to change because that'll upset the whole social order if, if, if people listen to different music. And at some point in the 50s, the powers that be just abdicated control over American popular music and let black folks and Jews take over. And I, I mean, I guess that was just the American devotion to the bottom line and whatever makes a buck. But if you're some kind of evil racist mastermind, that's the last thing you ever would have done is, is uh, you know, Jews and black folks and, and rednecks who are totally dispossessed and despised by the ruling classes. And and like that whispering Bill Anderson quote at the beginning where he talks about country is this us versus them thing. And that immediately gets my backup because my first inclination, even as a redneck myself, is to think, oh, that's some kind of racist thing. You know, that the us and them line is, is a racial line. But he's not talking about that. He's talking about the social class line, the class line between the people on Music Row, the people that were at the funerals of Patsy Cline and Hawkshaw Hawkins and Cowboy Copas, and the people up in Bellmead who – resent country, Nashville becoming the country music capital of the world and, and want it to Bill, stay this path of the South. So, um, Bill Anderson's the guy who wrote the song Poe Folk, so he'd know about the class distinctions. You know? and, yeah, absolutely. And Bill Anderson's another one. Like, this is a guy that I grew up hearing, you know, his whisper in Bill Anderson hits, like, still, and, and just hated it, you know, and... and and then when I discovered that he wrote so many, you know, um, Ray Price classics and he wrote Saginaw, Michigan, and he's just this absolutely essential country songwriter, despite as a singer, I still am not a fan, although I'm kind of morbidly fascinated with those songs where he takes the break in the middle to whisper in a speaking voice and, and get super sentimental. But, uh, and not only but, that, but if you talk about like, you know, music, if you talk about like country music, like race mixing and just like, you know, genre mixing. He actually did like a couple of credible versions of uh, R&B songs down the road. They weren't his biggest hits, but I do know that he did do versions of The Supreme, Someday We'll Be Together, and The Shylights, uh, Have You Seen Her? Oh, you my know, God, I got to track that down. 
I mean, he's got pretty big ears, you know, for a country politan guy. I mean, it's like I, I react the same way as you. It's like, I mean, I was over at a friend's house, you know, and I told him that, you know, Bill Anderson never really, like, made a dent with me because I knew a lot of sappy stuff he did. And he played me a Bill Anderson's Greatest Hits album, the very first one, you know, and I'm like, wow, there's something there, you know. I mean, still kind of still kind of wimpy, but maybe it's because he was on DECA, you know, it, it hit a little bit harder than it had a right to, you know. Yeah, yeah and I wondered if – his limitations as a singer wasn't why he wasn't the one who did City Lights, for example. Like, or I mean, maybe it was his career placement. He, Ray Price was obviously bigger, um, you know. So it just kind of made me wonder if that Whisper and Bill thing was just a way to get around his limitations as a singer. But we also should bring up Ray Price because they talk about him, and it's very important that he was the one guy who wrote out the rockabilly era. Even the Leuven brothers have electric guitars on their records of this period. And Ray Price is keeping the fiddles front and center and totally the representative, the champion of hardcore country through this whole period, you know, with the legendary Texas shuffle. And so definitely want to mention Ray Price, who... It is pretty dance. Think about it. You know, that, that, that walking bass. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's it's it, yeah, it's it's even as much as that they were talking about oh he's Mr. Hardcore Country and he is with the arrangements but his songs and his beats are innovative and and bringing yeah. in this shuffle pattern from the blues. So even Mr. Pure is not quite so pure. And of course ironically, you know, growing up my best friend Danny's dad who had this great 50s record collection you know, love Chuck Berry and Hank Williams and George Jones and introduced us to so much great stuff. And and he would tell us about that heartbreaking day when Ray Price sold out and <laughs> 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 went countrypolitan. And, you know, uh, so but but the reason that hurt so much is because there was this period in the 50s when Ray Price was was absolutely carrying the torch for pure hardcore country and and keeping it going. But we'll talk about that 60s period uh, next time when we continue our discussion of Kim Burns country, any final thoughts on this episode, James? Uh, I thought it was pretty cool. I mean, this kind of crossover period, you know, always did fascinate me, you know, in a lot, in a lot, in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, of course, I mean, there are a lot of crossover crossover hits that they only really get around to. Like, I mean, big bad John by Jimmy Dean, who admittedly I wasn't a fan of. I mean, I just like that song, but most of what, most of the other things I've heard by him, um, literally uh, didn't really like ringing the bells for me, you know, but that song and his delivery, you know, was so powerful, you know, yep. and also like who else would say, would dare to say the word hell twice on a record in 1961. Yep. You know? Yep. Yep. That was, that was a pretty bold controversial thing. And I, I should also mention, I don't know if I mentioned it before, but they talk about Roger Miller and they also talk about Roger Miller finding the plane wreck that Patsy Cline and Hawkshaw Hawkins were in. I did not know that, that Roger Miller climbed a forest fire uh, tower in the forest out there, west of Nashville and actually led the way to the body. So yeah, I mean, it is. He, this... he wasn't famous yet, I guess, but I guess the whole Nashville scene knew him as a writer. So, I mean, it wasn't unusual for him to go out there like with the other, other yeah. celebrities like, check out what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they knew him from from uh, Tootsie's or- Orchid Lounge, so you know, and and he's going to be a big part of of the '60s, and so, um, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see how they to discuss how they cover Roger Miller and, and that whole '60s period. So, James, it's been fun as always, and look forward to you next too. time. All right, thanks a lot. Later. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Country Roll will be back next week when James and Nate discuss Episode 5, The Sons and Daughters of America, which covers Charlie Pride's efforts to integrate country music, the rise of Roger Miller, Buck Owens and Merle Haggard's Bakersfield sound, Loretta Lynn, and the new wave of female singers she led. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 